Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 107 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday afternoon, it's January 22nd, and I'm Bobby Chesman. I'm Steve Vladek. It's the first day of classes. Oh my goodness. We uh, we start late here. Well, this year. I, we don't usually, but this year it feels especially... I guess we'll stay late too, probably in, in June. The, the, Actually, June. Ha, I don't May. know if we make it into May. Seriously. We? We'll, we'll make it to May this year. We're hardworking folks. But Very the podcast hard. is on all the time. <laughs> the podcast doesn't take a break for pesky things like holidays. What did you teach today? Well, uh, today I taught my first federal courts class where I taught the Fourth Circuit's 2012 en banc decision in Al-Shamari at the intersection of <laughs> Abu Ghraib torture and interlocutory appellate jurisdiction. So you're like trying to drive down the enrollment during the ad drop period? Hey man, you know, scare them until you get the true believers who there are left. There you go. There you go. Going to get down to a small class so you can get curve relief. I also gave them a lecture about, you know, how, how rough the casebook is. No. <laughs> well, um... We're going to talk a lot, and maybe in our final substantive segment, about what's going on in our courses. But before that, we've got some really great topics. Today is an interesting day at the Supreme Court. So Very. We'll open with a SCOTUS uh, update. And uh, following that, we'll have a, uh, of course, military commissions update. Because how could we not? But also today is also a potentially momentous day for the military commissions. Indeed. And, and really, in, some of this is going to be a preview. It's it's too soon for us to do a full debrief on how the oral argument went in the Alma Shiri case. It was past interference, Bobby. Come on. <laughs> not too soon. Can't review it, apparently. Um, we are going to get to that in frivolity, of course. And we'll also have something on the KSM trial front. Uh, or, or rather, uh, a non-trial or non-trial, as the case may be, and then we're going to talk about uh, these three FISA sur- surveillance-related authorities that are going to expire on December fifteenth of this year unless they're renewed. We're going to get a, uh, a primer of sorts out there, building off of a, a post I did at Lawfare, uh, and then uh, kind of for the fun of it, we will take note of a, a late-breaking item here. Uh, a, a video from the vice president to the people of Venezuela talking about America recognizing uh, the opposition as the legitimate government of Venezuela, de- effectively uh, de-recognizing the Maduro administration. We'll, we'll note a few uh, interesting legal implications from that. And uh, then we'll talk about our courses and get on to the frivolity, which in the spirit of the NFC and AFC championships, will have a lot to do with both overtime rules and review practices or, or lack of review. So I'm, I'm going to be a lot harder on the overtime. This may surprise people, but I'm going to be a lot harder on, on the overtime rule than I'm going to be on whether defensive pass interference should be reviewable. Yeah, okay. That, that may have a lot of support. And, and, and I'm going to remind everyone that if we're talking about worst blown calls in NFL playoff history, you know, the conversation has to go through San Francisco. Uh, is there like was there some Giants game in San Francisco that uh... was there some Giants game in San Francisco <laughs> was there a 2002 <laughs> divisional playoff game where the Giants got about as hosed as one can be hosed um, because the refs didn't know the rules Ouch. as opposed to missing a call. Oh, interesting. This this makes me think that we might be able to turn this into my favorite kind of frivolity where we define, parse the, the, define, the, define the conversation. Yeah, well, and then, and then we're also going to talk about, you know, some, some now that the semester is nigh, what we're doing. Exactly so. We, we need to <laughs> explain what we're doing when we're not recording this show, which <laughs> clearly doesn't take that much of our time because we don't prepare much. Uh, and let's I actually that. prepared today. You did? You're, well, good. As long as one of us is prepared, that will help carry the show. <laughs> I'm partially prepared, and that's what counts. You're prepared on SCOTUS. What happened today? So a uh, big order list from the Supreme Court this morning. A couple of headlines that I want to sort of walk through, I guess, seriatim. Um, first, on the transgender ban, a.k.a. the Mattis policy, a.k.a. the sort Sort of um, cleaned up version of President Trump's demand that transgender transgender individuals um, be 
either precluded from serving in the military or not allowed to go through transition while in the military or whatever have you. So bit of confusion, I think, in the world about what happened this morning. So the Supreme Court did two things this morning. In two of the pending cases, the court, by a five to four vote, issued stays of the district court's nationwide injunctions against the policy. Um, but the court also denied the government's petitions for cert before judgment. So basically, we're going to allow the policy to go into effect, but we're not going to jump over this, the courts of appeals that have yet to rule on it. We're going to allow the cases to proceed, but the policy to go into effect while the case proceeds. So that sounds like no one should be reading a lot into it. In well, I, I disagree. Oh, I disagree. because So the vote, was, the vote on the stage was five to four. Um, and I think that's a pretty strong sign that if and when the case gets to the Supreme Court, um, there are five votes to sustain the policy um, and reverse these injunctions. But where I think folks got confused is a lot of outlets ran with the headline um, that the policy will go into effect right away. There's actually one more injunction ah. still out there that was not directly um, before the Supreme Court today, the Maryland uh, District Court's injunction in Stone because that case was, I think, reassigned to a new judge who had not yet had uh, time, has not yet ruled on the government's motion to dissolve the injunction. So the government had not yet sought a stay from the Supreme Court. So when that judge gets to the point of making that determination, they're not formally bound by today's determination, no, but, they're, but they clearly should not issue a nationwide injunction. I right? think that's right. And so so I think that all this is, all, the, the, confusion, the headline confusion is just a matter of timing. That I think for all intents and purposes, sometime in the next couple of days, the Defense Department is now going to be free to put this policy into effect while the challenges to it continue to make their way through the Courts of Appeals and presumably eventually the Supreme Court. And and this is to tie back to an earlier uh, set of episodes. We've noted this recent uh, unusual trend of trying to get the Supreme Court to, to intervene, skipping over the circuit stage. Uh, here, that didn't succeed. It, so it's, it's interesting. It didn't succeed and it did succeed, right? In, the, in one sense, the government got what, it's, got what it wanted because the policy gets to go into effect. In another sense, the government did not get what it wanted because the court said, but, you know, we're not going to short circuit the ordinary appeals process. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe it's sort of, you know, from that perspective, I think a little, you know, the government got more than nothing, but not everything. Is there any reason to think, though, that uh, they actually were, were more likely to get what they wanted on the stay issue because they were really pushing, yeah. you know, sort of a negotiation technique of yeah. reaching for the moon, hoping that at least they'll get the half. It's, it's I mean, right. It's possible that this was an opposition program um, and that asking for sure before judgment was a way of making the stay application look that much more reasonable as sort of a, yeah. a compromised position. You know, I think what we're seeing, there's a lot that's interesting sort of lurking beneath the surface here. One of them is here's the first time we've seen the new conservative 5-4 majority flex its muscles, mm. um, right? This is the first straight up. Five four, you know, conservatives on the five, liberals on the on four. an issue where I think it's safe to speculate that Kennedy might not have been. Oh, there. for sure. Yeah. I don't. I think it's quite safe to speculate that. Yeah. Um, but second, that again, I think we're seeing the chief, you know, trying very hard to sort of not look too. I mean, to a degree, he can't help it. Like you've got to rule on the stay application one way or the other. Yep. But by granting the stay application but denying cert before judgment, right? The chief is showing sort of no special... I'm not just, he's not just doing what the government's asking him to do. Indeed. And that, and I think that, that should be an easy one for him because cert before judgment really is extraordinary. Yeah, the court hasn't granted it since 2004. It hasn't granted it in a case like this since 1988. I will say, I mean, I don't think this ends up mattering that much, but an interesting footnote is, so today we have the first denial of a cert petition by the Supreme Court in a national security case where the government sought cert. 
since before 9-11. Oh, that's interesting. But, you know, I think... I, but it's because of the obvious, before judgment well, element, yeah. And the, and the stay. I mean, I think, yeah. right, the, you right. know, if that's a loss, the government will take it. Right, exactly. Oh, that is interesting. So right, that's, so, I, yeah. so, I, so I wouldn't treat it as a break with the trend, but it is nonetheless an interesting sign. Yep, um, totally. Okay, now that's the transgender cases. Um, we'll see what goes with, with that. Um, going sort of in order of importance, the second probably most important thing that happened at the Supreme Court this morning was nothing on DACA. Um, so the, the government has also had a series of petitions pending in the Supreme Court challenging lower court rulings that had themselves ruled that the government acted unlawfully when they rescinded DACA, um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Immigration Program, um, that the court did not... Didn't, so the, the question was, is the court going to take these cases? Is it going to expedite them? Is it going to decide them this term? Um, the court took no action today which I think is being correctly interpreted by everybody as the court signaling that it's not touching this issue this term. And is that in turn going to relate to the ongoing negotiations where Trump has floated the idea of a temporary right. extension so, of DACA? So I think, I think the president had been hoping, indeed he has said, that you know, the courts are one of the levers here. Um, and by not acting, yeah, the Supreme Court has said, saying, we're not going to be your lever. We're not going to be your lever. Um, right? That, that your, your, your rescission of DACA remains frozen. Um, which, which, which further devalues his offer to extend it, right? Well, in exchange for his border wall, right? If, if you can even call it a good faith offer in the first place, um, which I'm skeptical of, right? So, so, so the no action on DACA is is huge in two respects. One, because it means that for the time being, DACA remains in effect. Um, two, because it takes away the sort of specter of a Supreme Court ruling as a meaningful negotiating tactic in the ongoing shutdown negotiations. Right, right, right. No, that's uh, not surprised to see the court not wanting to grasp that nettle. Well, but also, I mean, it's part of a broader pattern where the court really is pushing a lot of high-profile stuff into next term. Mm-hmm. And, you know, i got to say, I understand the short-term thinking there that this has been a very bad year for the image of the Supreme Court, you know, whatever wh- whatever side you come down on. Right, right. Institutionally, try to try to have innocuous cases. Right, and, keep, and keep the court out of the headlines. The problem is that by pushing them all into next term... Yeah, it's an election year. It's, I mean, it means that the decisions are coming down in May and June of 2020, <laughs> and so you're going to have all of these... <laughs> Wait, com- is, is anything going on in America in the summer of 2020? Exactly. So, you know, I, I wonder if it's sort of short-term gain for long-term, lo- you know, cost, but we'll see. Um that's interesting. The third interesting thing that happened this morning at the Supreme Court was the court granted the entirely routine um, application on the part of this unnamed, the mystery Mueller subpoena deal. Oh, this is the foreign sovereign entity. The foreign sovereign owned corporation um, had. So we already talked about how the, the, the this, this foreign government owned corporation had defied a subpoena from Mueller's grand jury, had been held in contempt had gone to the D.C. Circuit first and then the Supreme Court asking for stays of the contempt citation, right. ultimately lost in both courts, is now presumably paying this contempt fine or at least allowing it to accrue, but is also trying to get the Supreme Court to take the case on the merits. And so there was a motion to file their cert petition under seal, which the Supreme Court granted this morning, mm-hmm. with redacted copies for the public record, which were released shortly thereafter. So we've now seen the redacted cert petition um, by the redacted lawyers who CNN is reporting are from Austin and Bird, um, <laughs> representing a uh, redacted, unnamed foreign government-owned corporation. One of the juicy tidbits we learned from the unredacted parts of the petition is this corporation is wholly owned by the relevant foreign country, not just partly owned. Interesting. What is your guess as to what type of entity we're talking about here? Bank? 
Sovereign Wealth Fund real estate enterprise? Well, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, Laura Rosen, I think, pointed out on Twitter this morning, I, I'm hard-pressed to sort of separate this from the headlines about Michael Cohen and the Cutter Investment Authority. Ah. Um, I, I have no reason to suspect that that's what this is. But it seems to me interesting that while all this is going on, there are headlines about investigations into Cohen's relationship with the Cuttery. Right. Um, and, and... That is deeply plausible to me. That makes sense. And and it's worth underscoring. So, A, a lot of people online see FSIA and they think it's no, FISA instead. It's not a FISA situation. Nope. This isn't about that. Nope. This, is, this is from a certain point of view, at least from foreign relations law perspectives, it looks like it's a fairly exciting fact context, but in a mundane legal issue about process uh, to which you can be sub- subjected if you're a foreign owner. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating foreign sovereign immunities case in the sense that there's this interesting question about whether the FSIA is exclusive when it comes to processing criminal cases, when yep. it comes to a criminal yep. subpoena. A very a very important topic, um, for sure. And Shemen Keitner, among others, has written about this. Um, you know, Shemen's post, I think, is, is a really good walkthrough of why. It's an interesting question, but she concludes ultimately not that close of one um, and why she thinks the, the courts have been right to honor the subpoena right. and the corporation's been wrong. You know, I, I wish I could say that that's why people are paying attention right, to this Right, that's not. It's no one is watching this. I mean, other than like the 27 foreign relations law professors, you know, who we could all name, <laughs> right? No one is watching this case because of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act questions right. it raises. Right. I suspect in the end, even if they, you know, leak out who it is, it won't turn out to be that exciting a reveal about the ins and outs of the Mueller investigation. I mean, maybe it will be. Maybe a new front opens up, but it's probably not going to be something that goes right to the heart of why most people are watching. No, but the irony is the fact that it has Mueller implications, right, is both completely irrelevant to the merits and also the very, the most important reason why the court's not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, it's yet another reason to say, like, I think the circuit's got it right. So, so all this is to say, I mean, I think there's, you know, for all the attention being paid to this case and the yeah. fact that this cert petition's now been filed, a, redact, a, red, a redacted version's now been filed, um, this is still going nowhere. Yeah, yeah, agree, agree. Um, right. One last Supreme Court update. There was update. even more. It was a busy morning. Um, so the court also, the one new case in which it actually granted cert, um, and I mentioned this just because I think this has indirect national security implications, um, is a major Second Amendment case um, oh, yeah. out of New the York, New York. Um, about whether New York, New York City basically has a, a law, I think it's New York City, maybe New York City. Anyway, there's a law that basically limits transportation of firearms outside the home. Um, which is not an issue the Supreme Court addressed in its 2008 decision in Heller, Mm -hmm. where the court reinvigorated the individual self-defense part of the Second Amendment. Um, The court, as you know, Bobby, hasn't taken a major Second Amendment case since 2010. That's really stayed away. Um, It's really stayed away. And I think, you know, I I don't think it's hard to figure out why it stayed away. I think, you know, there hasn't been a clear majority that has an idea of how it wants to implement the right that the court recognized in Heller. They've let, you know, when Justice Kennedy was the swing vote, I think both the lefties and the righties were content to sort of leave matters to the lower courts and not take a chance um, on losing on the merits in the Supreme Court. You think now there will be hopes for yes. further extending the yes. doctrinal scope I think, I think of the individual no, rights interpretation? I, I think there's no way to read this morning's cert grant as anything other than the new conservative majority flexing its muscle when it comes to the Second Amendment. Interesting. Yeah, that it could be that a logjam was broken on that particular doctrinal front, which well, is and, not to yeah. say that that the end result doctrinally is going to be all that different from this task quote, but it might be. And there, there's, 
you know, no lack of test cases out there waiting uh, to be examined if the court majority is now really eager to flex its muscles, like you say. I think that's right. And what, just one last quote note. I think it's also quite possible um, that by the end of today, if not tomorrow, the Justice Department will ask the Supreme Court for cert before judgment again, <laughs> um, this time in the 2020 census litigation. Yeah. And the census case, I think, is procedurally, procedurally unique, Bobby, because it's the case where I think the government actually has the best claim to urgency. Oh, I com- completely agree. There's there's an obvious almost comes with the territory an obvious sense of uh, time because it uh, has to be done by June. This. Yeah, yeah. No, so, so, so that actually right. makes sense, and I wouldn't even necessarily interpret that as further evidence that they're now trying to skip the line. In no, 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 no. I actually, I mean, I, the, the 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 as I've said over and over and over again, the problem with the Solicitor General asking for extraordinary relief in so many cases is it then gets harder to sort out the ones where it's really yep. compelling. And to me, the census case. I don't agree with the SG's position at all. I think the SG ought to lose, and I hope the SG loses. But there's no denying yeah, it's that not if the procedurally court, odd. It's to, not procedurally yeah. odd for the court to say, oh, well, we have to decide this by June. Let's hustle. I agree. They do have a larger crying wolf problem that yes. they're bringing upon themselves. Yes. But it, from a purely procedural, no comment on the merits perspective, it's a wolf. This is a time-pressured situation. It, it's reasonable. That's what that's what cert before judgment is for, yeah. unlike the other context exactly. where it's been deployed. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, all this to say... Um, very busy order list, interesting for what's not in it, um, suggests we're not in for that blockbustery of a term this term, that like, you know, we're not going to spend yeah. all of May and June holding our breath for all of these path-breaking decisions. Um, but next term, whew. Well, 20, 2020 in general probably will shape up to be like the final season of Game of Thrones, where you just have to resolve all the plot lines all at once. Oh, gosh. <laughs> April, I, it went, went April 4th? I can't wait. Uh, I can't wait. But P- I will not catchers? go down that rabbit hole. Um, are, you, are you going to rewatch uh, the last season to get, you know, back fresh in your mind? Where so, you, you know, are? we moved in November, yeah. right? And one of the things that happens when you move is you lose all the things that were stored oh, in your DVR. DVR. Yeah. So, um, fortunately, HBO had a Game of Thrones marathon in December. And so our DVR right now has a bunch of random things here and there. Do you have HBO to go? You um, should have it all on there. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. you know, but the, our DVR right now has all 67 episodes of oh, Game of Thrones. Oh, my goodness. So, well, I <laughs> I challenge you, sir. I challenge you to watch them all. I will in not. I, there's in what universe will I have time? I think I'll be lucky if I get to rewatch season seven. This reminds me of um, some friends of mine in college who uh, got the, the. I'm sure they were VHS tapes. Ah. Uh, the 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 Beta TV miniseries for Lonesome Dove. And as I recall it, these fellas, uh, they, they may or may not have had some whiskey, and they may or may not have spent a, a nonstop session watching this. I had a lot of respect for that. That was a, you know, Lonesome Dove's very worthy. Um, all right, so there's SCOTUS, but other but courts, other have, courts been have been busy too. Yeah. So, so the DC Circuit, uh, uh, the the second most important court in the country, so people say. So we know from last week's episode that uh, today was the day. It's in the, the books. The, the arguments are in the books. I even listened to part of it. And so we're going to dig into it in great detail next week to really see whether we can. Um, glean any nuggets that weren't already kind of obvious and covered. You've had an initial glance. What was your initial impression? Let's go ahead and have that now. So just to remind everybody, this is Alan Ashiri and this is In Ray Spears, right? These are about these are the two somewhat related cases about Judge Spath, whether she would be dis- disqualified from presiding over Nashiri's capital case, and whether the civilian lawyers who were excused were allowed to be excused by the Chief Defense Counsel. I haven't listened to any of the Spears argument. Um, the Nashiri argument on a quick reaction went pretty well for Nashiri. I mean, so to remind everybody, the panel is Judges Rogers, Tatel, and Griffith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Judge Griffith is an important bellwether here because if the government's going to win, they have to have Griffith. And Griffith previously had shown a lot of patience right. for the Milcom system, wanting things to go ahead and percolate up through the uh, the formal process. Right. And, and, and in many ways, as we've noted several times, 
his patience has not been rewarded by performance by the military commissions or the court of military commission review. So there was a, so I'll, I'll just say there's a quick vignette from the, toward the end of the government's argument, and we'll, we'll spend more time on this next week, but I think this summarizes how it went today. So toward the end of the government's argument, the government was trying to make the, was trying to sort of stake out that we shouldn't be that offended um, that military judges are pursuing additional employment because, you know, military judges are transient, um, <laughs> right? And, and you know, um, unlike Article Three judges, you know, are completely rightly entitled to pursue yeah. Which no one's denying. Okay, but so then Judge Griffith asked, are you saying this happens all the time? Um, which, given that this is at least the second instance of this that we're aware of in this yeah. case, is kind of awkward. Um, and in rebuttal, our, you know, Michelle Parody, who was our guest last week, said, if you don't want this to happen all the time, you grant full relief. So I, I, you know, my gut reaction to the argument is that um, Griffith was not as friendly to the government as they might have hoped if yeah. they were going to count their way to two on this panel. Yeah, there and there, there's really no way to count to two on the on the core issue of whether what's been going on by way of undisclosed uh, efforts by the trial judge to secure this position uh, is problematic or not. They're clearly going to lose on that. And to me, the interesting questions are: do do they actually right. kick it back down to the lower court? I probably not. That was maybe the most the government could hope for. Then the interesting question is: How far what, back do you yeah. do you re, do you re, re, do they do you vacate the, the wheel? entire docket? Do they vacate all, all the SPAS rulings? Do yeah, they vacate I, only from the from some date connected to when he began? I think that's going to be the real question because I mean, listen, the the very very first question that Judge Griffith that any judge and it was Griffith asked Michelle, you know, at the beginning of the oral argument was. Um, shouldn't this go back to the CMCR? Yeah. And if that's, I mean, the, you know, for those who aren't, you know, lawyers, I mean, if the court starts with the question of what is the remedy <laughs> for the violation you are alleging, yeah. that's a pretty powerful sign Awkward. that the court kind of thinks you're you're onto something here. Yeah. No, it, there's they're they're in good shape, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, you know, you never want to. I mean, I, you don't want to. You don't want to count your chickens before they hatch. Um, you know, um, so you mentioned something maybe going back to the CMCR. What's the deal with the CMCR on the abatement front? Ha, ha, ha. In the Shiri? Or just overall? Well, overall. So the CMCR has some interesting... Um, I'm sorry, did I say abatement? I meant on the... Recusal uh, and the, quorum. The corateness. The corateness. Does it that, have that's the not... quality of being corate? Being... You know... The Irish, that was, was it the Irish Times? Is that the newspaper that's told this? This is from a very early episode, yeah. Um, so, so this is actually now the subject of a separate mandamus petition. Um, so also last week, um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, you know, kind of important detainee, <laughs> yes. um, filed a new petition for a mandamus in the D.C. Circuit um, in his case, uh, raising two objections. One, that the CMCR is in his case currently in court, which is depriving him of a mechanism for seeking immediate relief from bad trial court rulings. But two, and this is, I think, the closer tie to Nishiri, Bobby, um, arguing that Judge Perella, who is the new presiding judge in the 9-11 case, um, ought to be disqualified, ought to have to recuse because one of his former... Don't tell me he was getting an immigration judge position. No, so this is All actually right. backwards-looking, not forwards-looking. Right. Um, this one is because Judge Perella spent some of his prior you know, career, spent some, of his, spent some time in the counterterrorism section in the National Security Division at DOJ and was, according to the petition, you know, involved in discussions about the military commissions and about these cases and may very well be privy to information um, that is not part of the public record, that is not available to the defendants, um, and that that creates at least the perception of bias worthy of you know taking the recusal issue seriously, that they're at least entitled to, 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 to pursue more evidence and to have a hearing on the matter. Yeah, my, my 
this first time coming to grips yeah. with this, yeah. and my initial reaction is that you know maybe uh, that strikes me as much less likely to be fruitful for the defense than the the spath in schools. Hey, the judge is seeking a job from the Justice Department currently. Uh, line of argument, but of course, I, I would want to know what exactly is yeah. the nature of his prior involvement in the case. I, I think the strongest argument here is going to be building a record, right? Is there is there enough reason to at least allow for evidence to be taken? And frankly, I think the shenanigans in Al Nashiri don't really help the government on this front because, like, if I'm the D.C. Circuit, I'm looking at Al Nashiri and I'm saying, well, what can building a record hurt? You know, at least we'll at least we'll be you know we'll be in a better position to rule on the matter. It's interesting. Do what, of course, on one hand, you'd think, well, the right way to handle this is to learn everything there is. On the other hand, we can't have fishing expeditions. Agreed. So yeah, do, totally do we have a sense from what they filed how much of this is speculation? How much of it? And did they give any kernels of we know from this public statement or some witness has told us right. there was this type of so engagement? It's just, it's just more that like we know that these decisions were made by DOJ at the time he was in that position, right? We don't exactly know what his role yeah. was in those decisions. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's more than enough there to, that this doesn't strike me as frivolous. Um, I don't think it's nearly as facially compelling as what's going on in yeah. the jury. Uh, sounds like, uh, bearing in mind the procedural posture, yeah. this is a petition for mandamus. That also, I think, puts it uh, you know, a much higher bar for them to meet. No and question. if they are fishing to but some it extent. Does, but if nothing else, it highlights, the, as you say, the, 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 the incorate nature of the CMCR and why that's a problem. Now that, yeah, now that's more interesting. Although, okay, so turning back to that one, um, on one hand, it can't be the case that there can be a permanent block to right. any further progress because of just ongoing indeterminate yep. inquirateness. Right. Uh, or indefinite, I should say. Maybe indeterminate fits in there as well, but <laughs> indefinite is what I meant. Uh, but is it right to look at this as having reached that point yet? I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, what I find interesting. So um, there are, I think, new military officers who have been assigned to the CMCR, but of course that just re-raises the appointments clause problem from al-Nashiri 1. Um, there was, at the end of the last session of Congress, a pending nomination to the CMCR of Professor Lisa Schenk um, from GW. I have not seen any sign yeah, that, that, that nomination. that got acted on. It didn't get acted on. And so I don't think, re-nominated, right? But I don't think it's been resubmitted yet. I mean, I haven't seen any indication it's been resubmitted. So all this is to say, I mean, this could be one of those situations where the D.C. Circuit, in the process of denying a petition, says some stuff to sort of yeah, light a shot fire across the bow. You know, under the relevant actors. I would think, were it me, where on one hand, as my comments a moment ago hinted, I'm somewhat skeptical on first reception to yep. both the lines of argument. On the other hand, I have this larger grave concern about the speed with which things are proceeding overall. Which, I think is, which, I li- is, which is to say, not. Which is, exactly. I think I like that idea that I would probably um, not accept this petition. On the other hand, I probably might take the occasion to say something. And the panel that the panel that's resolving the application is Henderson, Rogers, and Wilkins. Interesting. So, I mean, I think Henderson is clearly likely to be unsympathetic to the petitioner, um, although she was the one in Alan Sherry one who fired the shot across the government's mm-hmm. bow about the appointments clause, mm-hmm. you know Rogers I think is a pretty um, sympathetic. Sympathetic. I don't mean sympathetic. Rogers I think is 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 a good draw for for the petitioner in this case like this, and Wilkins I think is a bit of a wild card. Yeah, um, yeah. It's hard. It's really hard to know where this will come out, but I think because it's a mandamus scenario, I think that puts it a little beyond the reach probably of these types of arguments. But we'll see. Um, anything else happening on the Milcom's front, or is all otherwise quiet? Um, you know, quiet. Yeah. All right. Uh, that brings us to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So let's pivot away from uh, court activity uh, of, of that sort, SCOTUS and D.C. Circuit or Milcoms, and think about collection authorities that are governed by FISA. Um, I think a lot of people were 
who listen to this podcast were well aware that, uh, of course, last year we had this Section 702 renewal process. And probably a lot of people assume we were done with Pfizer renewals and sunsets for quite some time. Um, we you know, are never that far from some surveillance law debate these days. Whether this particular topic is going to generate anything remotely like the national attention that 702 re- renewal got, um, I actually think it's possible for reasons I'll get into, but they're just, it's, it's not as exciting. These aren't as front page issues. So there are three authorities that are expiring on December 15th of this year. Um, one, in no particular order, one of them is the so-called roving wiretaps or, or uh, well, just roving wiretaps, right? This was Section 206 of the old USA Patriot Act of the- Oh, that, that old chestnut. 2001. That's truly an old chestnut. You know, cast our minds back, there was a time, Steve, when- no one talked about Guantanamo, and no one was yet talking about. Well, it was right when we started talking about military commissions because of Military Order Number One that November, um, when the Patriot Act was the thing people talked about. There was there was uh, not yet the world of detention controversies, uh, drone strike controversies, interrogation controversies. There was surveillance authorities and investigative authorities. Um, the roving wiretaps was never all that controversial, but it was somewhat controversial. Um, And so here's how this one works. And I'll I'll just preview these one at a time. The basic idea is that, of course, there are some people who understand that they might be surveilled and will attempt as an operational security matter to defeat surveillance, to defeat wiretapping um, by rotating through phones, going through a bag of burner phones or what have you, by not staying on the same uh, number, device, selector, service, whatever it is, rotating through a bunch. And in a world in which we assume for the sake of argument that there must be a court order to authorize the surveillance and that that court order authorizing the surveillance must be specific to the particular phone device, phone number, and service provider, um, that is a great operational security move because it'll be really cumbersome and difficult for the government to move at switching phones speed as the target might engage in, uh, which is why on the criminal investigative side with Title III uh, wiretap authority, on the criminal investigation side, we had long since uh, tweaked the rules such that there could be a so-called roving wiretap in the sense that uh, you have to make the usual probable cause showing and so forth, uh, but the order would not be unique to a particular phone number and service provider, but could instead encompass the possibility that um, the person might start going through a whole series of them, and the the tap could automatically flow with the user to those devices. Um, this was not originally done in parallel for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance uh, Act authority. So the USA Patriot Act Section 206 changed that. Um, and simply put, it expires in December, mid-December this year unless it gets renewed. Um, second, the so-called Lone Wolf mm-hmm. Amendment to FISA. Now, this one doesn't come from the Patriot Act. This one comes from uh, the Intelligence Reform and Preventing Terrorism Act of 2004, uh, the beloved ERTPA uh, did I get that right? ERP, ERP. Yeah, Intelligence, ah, Intelligence yeah. Reform and Terrorism that. Prevention Act. ERTPA. Uh, ERTPA, much more famous for giving us the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, of course. But it did a lot of other stuff, too. It had some important tweaks to the material support statute. And for our purposes, it, it addressed what was generally perceived as the uh, lessons of the Zacharias Massawi case uh, from right before the 9-11 attacks themselves. So what what is that lesson? What what was the deal there? Uh, many of you will remember the story of then often referred to as the would-be 20th hijacker, Zacharias Moussaoui, 
an Al-Qaeda operative who was in the United States, French citizen, but present in the United States, taking flight lessons in, um, in Minnesota. And his instructors became alarmed about this guy who seemed to have zero interest in taking off or landing, but really interested in how to steer large commercial airliners. And uh, being a bit of a, a strange fellow and I, I gather sort of setting off red flags just behaviorally how he's how he was acting they eventually you know went to the authorities and said we we think this guy's basically learning how to crash an airplane now this is huge especially once you know what happens next with the rest of the 9/11 plot which they did not yet know at the time long story short uh, he was he was detained on an he was an immigration detainer because there were grounds for for taking him into custody in that way then the question was all right should should he just be removed should he be prosecuted should we treat this as a foreign intelligence collection scenario? Well, obviously, it, it was at least the latter, right? Because it had the hallmarks of it, some form of international terrorist plot, um, as, as indeed it turns out there was good reason indeed to think he was an al-Qaeda member. They didn't know it yet. What they knew once they talked to French authorities was he was associated with various uh, Islamist extremist groups, but not clearly associated with being a member of a particular one which under FISA Title I, if you go to the FISA process to try to get a, a surveillance order, you need to show the person's a foreign power, an agent of a foreign power. And the whole effort to get a FISA order came a cropper within the executive branch screening process because it was not clear which specific nameable organization this guy might be, be part of. And they, they weren't able to show, for example, that he was perhaps acting on behalf of Al-Qaeda. Um, now, they could have tried to pivot over to get a, a criminal warrant instead. They weren't sure they had the evidence of crime as such, though they obviously had serious suspicions. Uh, in any event, once you went down that road, uh, that would tend to make the whole thing a primary purpose criminal investigation. So for a host of reasons, uh, it didn't go forward even to the FISA court. It was, it was uh, prevented from going forward within the executive branch review process. And the 9-11 Commission report really lays into the government for this, or lays into everybody involved except the agents pushing for the surveillance order uh, for not having been able to get through this. And they blast the system, if you will, for not having an option for this scenario where it is a foreign intelligence scenario. It is a foreign person. The interest is a, of a foreign intelligence variety, but you just happen to not be able to tie it to some specific organization. Um, not a state or, or a non-state actor like Al-Qaeda. So the Lone Wolf Amendment was a change to include involvement in international terrorism, acts of international terrorism or acts in preparation, therefore, um, as a standalone way of counting as an agent of a foreign power. Now, it's a bit of a misnomer. You're, you're not really being categorized right. as an agent of anybody. They're saying you are yourself all by yourself as a lone wolf, if necessary, or with some unnamed as yet to be determined group, a foreign intelligence international terrorism threat. Now, if I, I mean, if I remember right, I mean, one of the controversies surrounding the lone wolf, well, so, so it struck me, there, there, there have been sort of two big controversies, right, surrounding the lone wolf provision in its history. Um, the first is the concern that for the first time you've disaggregated um, foreign intelligence surveillance authority from either a foreign power or a group. Of international right. terrorism from, from a state or a not a, a non-state non but discrete organization, right? As opposed, right? And so, and and that once you cross that line, that's a pretty important line because what makes you know someone a lone wolf for purposes of ERTPA um, that doesn't necessarily also bring within its scope, 
Right. I mean, right. Like, like once you cross the line from states and non-state organized entities involved in international terrorism to individuals with no connection but who are still doing these activities, that's a big line. Right. And if if it was crossing into the domestic sphere, that would make a ton of sense, right? If it's not, if it's people who come from outside right. the country into the country to carry out entirely on their own lonesome because they were inspired by, though not directed and controlled by, the Islamic State or Al Qaeda. For me, I I could care less whether they have that larger organizational tie or state agency or not. That's a proper subject of foreign intelligence collection every bit as much as the guy who does happen to have the discreetly identifiable sponsor or organizational tie. I'm not sure I would agree with every bit as much, but right, like I'm I'm with you up to the every bit as much. Like I think there is a difference there that is not, you know. I bet we both agree that the. The decision to not limit this to agents of formal state governments, yes. the decision not to be strictly yeah, Westphalian yeah. about right. it, clearly correct. But that, but that predated 9-11. I mean, that of was course, no, that, that was the original deal. And that's right. not at risk here. That's right. going to stay in place. Right. What, what we're talking about here and what really turns on this, and, and what's so interesting is that, you know, the lone wolf provision, the data is, it, this is well, so that was barely... My second point, so okay, my, my yeah. second point was going to be, and, right, the, I don't know if it was the last time or two times ago when it was reauthorized, right, that yeah. the data was out that it had like, never been not used. Not been using it. Right, so... Ever. In, and, and so, so it's like, this is a critical authority. We desperately need it. We've never used it. Right, and so I think that it raises two questions. One is, why haven't we been using it? And the answer has got to be, and this is speculation, but I think this has got to <laughs> be right. Uh, we have... Lots of scenarios where the person's, pro- in my opinion, not best described as an actual member of the Islamic State mm-hmm. or Al Qaeda or some affiliated uh, organization, but is inspired thereby and is ideologically sympathetic. And it seems to me that the fact that we're not actually formally using Lone Wolf is a strong signal that what actually goes on, and I think this is too bad, is that they're actually being assimilated into the category of being members of an associated force of Al Qaeda, the Islamic State, for purposes of the agency determination. That is, people who are really actually Lone Wolf free agents or part of a bunch of guys who are um, nonetheless not directed and controlled are being more or less treated as if they are for purposes of the foreign power analysis. Um, I think that if that weren't the case, we should be greatly alarmed, right? There are plenty of situations now, indeed, part and parcel of the Islamic State model is not to direct and control people, but just to inspire them. And so the the volume of, of instances like that is sufficiently high to where I'm quite comfortable that we either have needed or if we've been avoiding using it because we've been squeezing people into another bucket, we really ought to write that ship, use the lone wolf provision for the scenario it's described for, and we certainly will need it going forward in the future. I, I think it's not even a close call, although I do, of course, recognize that it looks weird to say, like, well, if it's so important, why haven't we had it? Of course, the flip side of that is, well, if it's not really being used that much, then what's everybody so worried about? What's the harm? And, you know, that's standard move arguments when you have some authority that's not being used a lot. So... Um, what else is there to say about this? There's, there's plenty, but we'll leave it there in the interest of time and go on to the one that actually, I think, not roving wiretaps or lone wolf, but the next one will be the one that catches a lot of attention because it's business records, uh-huh. sometimes known as Section 215, sometimes known as the library provision back in an earlier time. This is the current iteration of the authority that was for a time the statutory basis for bulk metadata collection and the deep controversy unleashed after the Snowden revelations. Uh, And before that, it was the authority that was probably the most controversial uh, part of the Patriot Act um, because the librarians got very up in arms about this authority. Um, So what's going on here? This is is the production of documents rule. This is a, a 
this is an ability to get a FISA court order that compels some entity that's otherwise subject to a U.S. court jurisdiction uh, to produce the, the language in the statute is tangible things, but it's producing records information that that third party has. Uh, basically, the thing to understand here is this predates the Patriot Act. This authority had been around for a while, but was really narrow initially. It applied to common carriers in the specific sense of transportation entities, um, and it applied to uh, car rental places, storage uh, facilities, these sorts of things. It was a really limited set of, of four categories of entities that could be compelled to produce documents. And all these were the sorts of things that were sort of lead categories that would come to mind if you were conducting a terrorism investigation, like the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and you're doing the FBI work of going around to organizations trying to figure out you know, do you, do you have records of this car being led? Did, did someone rent a storage facility here? We need to get in there. Um, a very s important yet relatively small slice of all the possibly relevant third parties out there that might have information relevant to a terrorism or other foreign intelligence investigation. Uh, the Patriot Act expanded this. Uh, later on, there were a, a cool series of changes. I'm going to gloss over the nuances. Um, and eventually it became what it is now, which is any entity could be subjected to a re request for production of documents under this rule. So one thing that's at stake with the expiration of this provision would be going from this everybody's subject to it back to the 1990s world. I think the 1998 rules, the one that would control, where it's only these narrow set of enterprises that would have to you know, they would be subject to this. That's a tremendous switch. And I've actually not seen a lot of serious argument saying that it's somehow a terrible mistake to go beyond those four categories. So that, that'd be a shame if, if that were to change. Um, some people might think like, yeah, yeah, but we need the thing that was the basis for bulk metadata collection. We need that to expire, surely. Well, no, no, this was the USA Freedom Act's big intervention. The USA Freedom Act uh, a few years ago stepped in to put a stop to what had been the uh, interpretation of relevance to an investigation that was being used to treat everybody's phone data and communications data as relevant, to take away that possibility of doing that sort of uh, bulk description, and leaving in place a limited ability for the government to go to the various uh, telecommunication service providers and go to them and get basically uh, the you have, a, you have to have a seed number that's your number of interest that you have shown there's reasonable suspicion to believe it's associated with international terrorism. And then you can go to the various telephone companies and say, do you, do you have records for this number? And then you can go one help out further from that. So if they called you, Steve, and you called me, they'd be able to get all the target numbers, dialing information, and then they get all of yours because you were within one reach. But not yours. But, but they couldn't go on to get mine at that next hop. So some people think that the USA Freedom Act change wasn't uh, disruptive enough to that sort of contact chaining investigative technique, and they'd like to see this thing go down in flames. I don't think there's a big lot of momentum for that, though. I think, if anything, there's probably more momentum for those who are maybe worried that maybe, maybe that was too strict. I don't think there's a great deal of momentum to expand it back to what it was. I see a lot of interest in maybe the status quo, but with some amount of increased oversight or transparency to better understand how things are working under the USA Freedom Act model of all this. All that said, the politics of it between first the wave of people catalyzed to be concerned by the Snowden revelations and now this new and not perfectly overlapping group that's catalyzed by Donald Trump's criticisms of 
all surveillance activity that NSA engages in, it seems like, at least uh, stuff that might be directed towards Trump Tower, has created some strange bedfellows out there. And there's no telling what sort of memes and themes might uh, percolate this year while there is this need to legislate in this area. So once once you have to touch this topic, a lot of stuff that's extraneous might filter in. And of, 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 who of knows? Course, of course, you might have assumed that Congress, I mean, you know, there, there's no, there, there, there's no must-pass legislation quite like expiring foreign intelligence surveillance authorities. Right. But this Congress seems, you know, must-pass legislation seems to have met, met uh, we have met the enemy and he is us. He is us, no question about that. So uh, predictions on whether this gets done before the last minute? Uh, 100% no. Um, wow. All right. But, all but right. I mean, so, so I, I want to sort of make two broader points, if I if I may. I mean, so the first is actually one is a question, one's a broader point. Let me start with the broader point. So um, we haven't talked a lot about the shutdown, and I think maybe we should reserve some time next week for starting to suss out some of the national security implications. Absolutely. Here, I'll, I'll throw one out real quick. Not paying the Coast Guard. How, how about having about half of the uh, cybersecurity personnel at DHS furloughed? Right. Cybersecurity personnel furloughed, uh, TSA staffers call, who who aren't furloughed, right, um, calling out sick, right, because it's not, I mean, it's not fair to them. By the way, do you think that the way this will end will be a big sick out by the TSA that shuts the airlines down and finally makes everyone? I mean, that was shut down. I mean, that was shut down, you know, if you shut down commercial travel in the United States for a couple of days. That, that ought to do it. Um, although I would have thought a lot of things would have ought, ought, to, do, ought to have done it by now. Um, there's something about how the FBI um, had to sort of uh, couldn't keep paying some of its sources, um, I saw today. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all kinds of um, security certificates for government websites that are going to expire. Uh-huh. That's right. That's um, right. I think in the next couple of weeks. Right. And there will be a whole trickle-down effect of services that are only accessed or, or put into motion through online application or engagement will become impossible. It's just, I mean, I, yeah. I just, I, at some point, you know, McConnell said today, Mitch McConnell said today that, you know, the, the president's compromise offers, by the way, is not a compromise, is the only thing that's on the table. No, there are nine bills that have passed the House, you know, that they're not on the tables only because the majority leader refuses to put them on the table, not because they're not there. Yeah, this whole, the whole anyway. thing is, is, is so 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 that so one thing is just sort of thinking about we ought to talk more about the national security implications of the shutdown. Mm-hmm. Um, on the specific topic of these three FISA sunsetting provisions, I mean, I'm struck by how much we've come to accept as a useful policy feature sunsets in foreign intelligence surveillance authorities, while they are still often um, pilloried when proposed for war and emergency powers. I mean, we talked about like one way to reform the National Emergencies Act right. is to have all national emergency declarations sunset so that the inertia is on Congress to authorize well, and reauthorize. Well, they, they do, right? They, they, they do sunset. It's just that the power to renew them is in the president rather than Congress so if, to affirmatively so, pass legislation. And so if Congress were to say, right, all declarations expire within 60 days unless Congress acts to approve them. Right, right, right. Exactly. So you could have that. Or, or you could just take the current framework and say, yeah, the president can turn the, the emergency power switch on for one year. Um, but the president has no ability to renew them unilaterally. They have to be renewed by an, by, a, by a bill that gets passed. Oh, I'm not sure we'd yeah. all agree to one year. But anyway, my point is just, right, that like it seems to me that there's a disconnect between the comfort that we have come to accept in the yeah. context of sunsetting surveillance yeah. authorities and, frankly, the track record, which is that Congress, with some tweaks here and there, has generally, you know, given the government not all that it wants – but has has reformed the authorities in a way that generally is closer to what the government wants than what like civil liberties and privacy groups want. So I'm I'm not actually unsympathetic, but I will offer the counter argument in the spirit of good debate to air the issues right. Um, 
So I think one of the things you would hear on the AMF issue is it's wildly different to put the troops into harm, harm's way, commit forces militarily, induce allies to commit forces, et cetera, and under the threat that maybe it won't get renewed, right? So you hear that a lot as a, as a criticism yeah. of having, you know, and you're signaling to the other side that maybe they can wait Just a second. Hold out. out long enough. And so the, so the stakes are a little different there as opposed to surveillance authorities where you don't have quite the same reliance interest. On the other hand, there is actually a reliance interest, and so maybe it just runs the other way. So I've heard from innumerable people from the point of view of the intelligence collection agencies saying that it's, it's actually – terribly disruptive to to have the sunset hanging over you and have and in, to be ready to like shut it down well and because indeed you do start because you can't run the risk given that congress only acts at the last minute on these things you have to assume the worst that it will get shut down indeed that sometimes it does get shut down briefly and you have to begin investing in the types of um, well who knows what it might be but you have to invest time resources and maybe money and technical know-how into replacement collection platforms and means because you don't know and you can't be caught flat-footed so one argument is that they're different. The other argument is they're actually the same, but maybe we should be more concerned about these sunsets. It, on it the just me, it's, just, it's a conversation we tend not to have, right? That that we tend to have them in, in the specific context of the individual topic in which they arise, and we tend not to have like this cross-cutting conversation about whether there's a general value or general problems with having these kinds of extraordinary authorities requiring you know, by cameras and presentment on a regular basis. There's no question that the uh, Trump administration's flirtation, which has now had kind of two waves but seems now to be dying out, with invoking a national emergency to uh, try to trigger some of the DOD funding reallocation authorities, has sensitized people beyond the narrow circle of us who study this stuff. Uh, more generally, the whole public has learned there are these statutory pre-delegated authorities. There's this mechanism that really does put the fox in charge of the hen house insofar as you view it as that kind of situation with these authorities. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people would say like, oh, well, if I'd known it was going to be like this, <laughs> I, I don't think I would like for it to have been like this. But it also underscores something. It's a recurring theme of our show, which is, you know, we're a show that's about the formal legal architecture. Uh, that's that's obviously the central and most visible part of the guardrails. But those aren't the only guardrails. Yeah. And it turns out a lot of what people assume was, was required or compelled or prohibited by law was more prohibited, compelled, or required by by norms of good behavior and culture and customs and, and political safeguards and, and, and civic virtue and other themes I like to come back to yeah. um, that turns out aren't universally shared. Surprise, surprise. Well, and, and indeed, and that and and intrusions into which are not as universally condemned as we might like. Like, it's, uh, I can imagine a series of norms that even if you don't universally share them, right? There's at least some understanding that intruding into those norms has right. deleterious effects that we can all you know condemn. That has not been the case. Yeah, and I'll give a shout out here to Mike Duncan, podcaster extraordinaire, the godfather of really almost all of our shows, right, for his history of Rome, Mike Duncan in his history of Rome, and now in his book, The Storm Before the Storm, uh, is always coming back to the, the theme that classicists all know, which is that in, in the Roman Empire, in the Roman Republic, uh, it turned out there was a lot that turned on your political culture and what norms were perceived to be taboo to violate. Yeah. And when those things give way, and especially when force enters into the picture, but also just crossing lines and discovering that not only might that not be condemned, might might not be career stopping, but might actually be career enhancing, um, you were on a very slippery slope towards a very dangerous place. So, and and while we're while we're while we're doing shout outs, shout out to our own law review, which is co-hosting a major symposium. 
um, February 7th and 8th in conjunction with the American Constitution Society, the national ACS, on the erosion and restoration of constitutional norms um, with some pretty impressive lineup of speakers, um, including uh, former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez and former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates. So yeah, it should be fun. It's going to be very interesting. Yeah. Um, it's a never a dull moment in Austin. We don't lack for speakers. True. T- we, it, we had David, David Sanger on campus today. In fact, David Sanger was talking about some of the things we've been talking hey, about hey. right here. Um, it is. I mean, I, as, as I learned when I started my career at the University of Miami, um, it's often very easy to get folks who live in cold weather climes to come to conferences <laughs> in January and February in the South. That's true. What was it about uh, 64 this morning? It was nice today. Yeah. I mean, I'm going. I'm actually going to New York this weekend. Where it's not going to be quite so warm. It's a little chilly. Yes. Well, I guess uh, we've got a lot of travel coming up. Let's just hope we're able to come back from those trips. Here, here. Uh, TS, any TSA agents? Thank you. Who are listening? Thank you for being there uh, <laughs> when you're not being paid. It's Seriously. really extraordinary. All right. Um, let's just close with a quick note. We noticed right before we were going uh, hitting record that uh, Vice President Pence has. There's something we don't talk about a lot in this podcast. Vice President Pence. Yeah. yeah. He he's got a video out. I, I gather it's directed to the the Venezuelan people, basically saying the United States is recognizing uh, the opposition leader in Congress. Uh, uh, I don't know the per- precise pronunciation pronunciation of his name, so I'm not going to venture it, but they're recognizing the opposition as the legitimate government of Venezuela, which obviously is, is a big international relations and, and politics and diplomacy matter and security matter. And I think, frankly, uh, anything that might er- further hasten the day when the Maduro uh, regime is out uh, is a good thing. But legally speaking, it's super interesting. So every now and then you'll see these situations where there's clearly a sitting person in control of the government who gets derecognized uh, by a major power who's interested in seeing a change. So I'm thinking of the French with Gaddafi. Um, The reason it's interesting legally is if you are taking the position that someone other than that person speaks as the sovereign or speaks for the sovereignty of that country, it has UN charter implications. Yes, with regard to uses of force. And with regard to anything that sovereignty. might be an infringement. Yeah. Uh, because now you're, you're now you're suggesting that the sovereign power resides not in the people who are purporting to exercise it, but in a different group. And, and, and maybe, and I'm not saying this yeah. is the case here, and in fact, I think it would probably be uh, problematic potentially for the goal of getting the Maduro folks out, but it does open the possibility towards them saying, look, we consent to this type of intervention. We consent to that type of intervention. Right. Help us out. It's like, Somebody come help us. Well, this is my this is my favorite, favorite con law uh, uh, brand teaser of all time. Do you know, uh, um, my favorite law review article is West Virginia Constitutional. Yeah, talk to me about that. So West Virginia um, was formed from either 34 or 39 counties in right. what was then sure. Northern Virginia um, in the middle of the Civil War because these were counties that were right. not interested in joining the Confederacy, right. sympathetic, et cetera. Um, the Constitution says quite expressly in Article 4 that, the t- that a new state can be formed from the territory of an existing state only with the consent of the existing state. Well, Virginia's legislature, which, you know, last I checked, sits in Richmond, did not exactly consent to the admission uh, of West Virginia I think the, the Union. theory was that, oh, who are the, that's a bunch of traitors and well, so insurgents, a bunch of, and so, so therefore the, their vote, votes the, don't count. The, the West Virginia Constitution drafters, who I think were meeting in Wheeling, um, called themselves first the Virginia legislature. Ah, well lawyered. Um, well and, lawyered, West Virginians. And, and, and as, the, as the nominal Virginia legislature, um, 
consented to the admission of themselves into the union as That's a new awesome. state. That's awesome. This is the one. This is and so another example from the force context. So Panama, right? Yep. So we swore in the guy's name's escaped. Maybe we swore in a a new leader on the tarmac, and and suddenly Noriega is you know a well armed and well organized <laughs> insurgent from a from that legal perspective. Uh, so it's it's an interesting move, and we shall see, or maybe we won't see because it'll be so right. but we may see some interesting moves. Following from this, I, under a different administration, I would assume this is a really carefully coordinated, especially with the Colombians. Yes, really carefully coordinated, larger. But uh, but, set but of really moves. carefully coordinated is a hard thing to put in the same sentence with this administration. Boy, that's for sure. Are, are you surprised this came from Pence? Um, no, because I actually think I'm glad to see it comes from Pence because it's better for it to come from someone other than Trump, obviously, for a host of reasons. How about like the Secretary of State? Well, I think it speaks actually with more with even more punch when it comes from Vice President Pence. I think that's probably the maximum for something like this. That's probably the best maximum <laughs> of of, a, of authority and actual pl- plausible connectivity <laughs> to uh, making things change. And boy, does that tell you something about unitary executives? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm reminded really quickly of the line in Good Morning Vietnam when Robin Williams is talking about how do you recognize a country anyway. Did I see you at the did I see you at the par, at, at the at the Smith party? I recognize you. I Recognition recognize. a hallowed topic. All right, I think we've run our substantive topics into the ground. So, oh wait, we haven't talked about our courses. Let's do that next That's, week. We will yeah, talk a couple. That. We will talk a couple of classes yeah, by next week. Good point. Week. All right, more on that later. Let's Frivolous. be frivolous. frivolous. Okay. So, um, if if you're not a fan of sport ball, um, this may be a, a good opportunity sport to ball. to 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 hit stop and and wait for next week. But but Bobby, I, I think you and I. Having no vested interest in the outcome of either of Sunday's uh, uh, conference championship games, I, I was pr- I'm pretty down with the New Orleans Saints. I right, view that as enough. sort of being right behind the Cowboys and then the Texans and then the Saints. Yeah, if they're if they're not even your second favorite NFL team, though, I mean, come on. Yeah, and also the home the home cooking with Drew Brees is well. So I was I was rooting against the Patriots, as you know, but this this was not the Giants. This was not the Texans or the Cowboys. Right, right. right, this was, right. Okay. Um. So I thought the officiating across the board. On Sunday was absolutely atrocious. Yeah, no, it's crazy. What? Okay, so is there a theory that explains why this is? So the best I can come up with, and this explains most, but not all, of the terrible calls, is that in these kinds of big games, officials get trigger shy um, because most of the problems, not all, but most of the problems were failures to were were, were non calls, not 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 incorrect. Overcalls. So overindulgence of the quote, let them play. Right, swallow the idea. whistle. Right. Which, by the way, uh, Mitch Berman wrote a, a very Indeed. interesting article story. called "Let Them Play." Um, so, so I think part of it is swallowing. Now, that doesn't explain the phantom roughing the passer call in the Chiefs Patriots game where someone breathed hard on Tom Brady. Right, right. Um, it doesn't. Ex- I mean, it doesn't explain everything. But I think the most common symptom, yeah. especially when it comes to pass interference. Um, of which there was plenty in both games that wasn't called. Um, is that the refs are sort of, right? Let them play, swallow the whistle. Don't you know? Don't decide the game. Except that then what you end up doing is decide the game by not Absolutely. throwing the flag. So the philosophers would tell us that choosing not to do something is a choice, and it's it's just a different kind of action. It's an action by omission. So obviously the the Saints. The the thing that was amazing about the. Defensive pass interference and head to helmet to helmet, you know, contact on that play. That was not just one, but two really clear yes. fouls. Uh, that it, it wasn't within the gray zone. And this what was, and, what and was remarkable. Now, listen, if you, if you weren't watching the game, just what happened was just inside of two minutes, the Saints had, I think, third and seven. 
Um, now, mind you, the, there are some questionable play calling in this series where the Saints did not force the Rams to burn their timeouts. But that's neither here nor there for the moment. So on third and seven, um, Drew Brees throws a pass where the defensive back um, clearly hits the receiver with significant force. Yeah, head to head. Head to head. Um, and pushes him out of the way before the ball gets there. Yeah, There's and it's not just like, it's, it's not even close. It's not even close as defensive pass interference. There's just no. It's just a missed call. Um, and why that matters is, had it been called, it would have been an automatic first down. Saints would have had first, and I, I think it was. I think it would have been first and goal from the nine. Um, with inside of two minutes, they would have been able to force the Rams to use their remaining timeouts, run the clock down to maybe twenty or thirty seconds, yep. kick yeah, a field chip goal. Shot. Yeah, from a kicker who has not missed all year inside the 40. So. Well, wait, I mean, so, so they did indeed still kick right. a field goal. Right, no, but it's the time. So, right. But so the Rams the, had time. The three points was a gimme. You right. can really bank on that. Right. And there would have been no time for the Rams to go down the field as opposed and get to, field goal range. Right, as opposed to what they had. So, okay, um, that's fine. Terrible call, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't think you fix it by making pass interference reviewable because it was a non-call. Like, how would you have reviewed it? You know, what, what I understand when a flag is thrown, I understand reviewing, like, I understand the argument that you should review whether the flag was correctly thrown. But when there's no flag thrown, you know, I don't know what, oh, what's, think, so, uh, what's have, the trigger, what's so the trigger for this? reviewing so how about this? So, so there's the moment, the instant the players fall to the ground, the ball falls to the ground. At that point, there's a window in which you would normally expect the flag to be found, right. thrown. It's not. But if two seconds later, the, the, the line judge or whoever was closest on the scene sits there and they're replaying their mind and they're thinking like, ah, I should have thrown my flag already. I'll throw it now. A late flag, but late flags late happen. Late flags happen. Late flags happen. So what is different? What's wrong with first uh, yeah. uh, the coach of the Saints throwing his red flag to, to call for? Because you, you can't allow this to be you know, no, again and be, again, again. Right. It has to be a, cha- a challenge. Right, but it's a challenge, and it's it's a rare chance, but he, he has it, and yeah. he uses it there. And by the way, if he's already challenged a play earlier, too bad for him. So, but, so here's the problem. Pa- I think the problem is with pass interference specifically. Pass interference is such a subjective penalty because the reality is that pass interference occurs on every single pass right. Just like play holding, in the NFL. Holding in, interference. Right. And so, so holding at least you can work out degrees of culpability right. where there's like, where there actually is is a pretty good common law of what will be flagged and what won't be flagged. Like, if yeah. I don't see your hands outside right, the right. pads. Yeah, keep them inside, outside. Right. But can't we, so this goes to, you know, my, my favorite 1L discussion, um, yeah. categories and the blurring distinctions, even in really, really yes. clearly distinct categories. Yeah. Night and day are not the same thing. But dusk and dawn blur, and you you can't tell what's what's yeah. dusk, what's dawn, depending on the degree of light. Reasonable people are going to disagree about which category you're in. There's a nebulous zone where ideally we wouldn't make decisions in that zone because it's so arbitrary. Why can't pass interference be like that where right. we shouldn't review and allow overturning except for very clear calls, of which this one might have been a paradigm. So have a high standard of review. Like, yes, exactly. Right? Set the bar high. Okay. Out, set the bar outside the gray Good. zone. So speaking of standards of review, we got to talk about the Julian Edelman muff, right? Mm. Because, you know, I had thought that we had a high standard review to wit clear and convincing evidence right. before a call on the field could be overturned. Right. It's supposed to be right. exactly that I kind of never role. saw the clear and convincing evidence that Edelman didn't touch that ball. Now, mind you, it's quite possible he didn't, right? Had right. the call gone the other way, it should have stood. The question is not, did he actually not touch it? So the ruling on the field was he touched it. It seemed sort of in the bang-bang moment of it all, it seemed like maybe he had. Um, but... On review, it was not clear. It was very much in the gray zone. 
and under a high bar standard of review, like you're supposed to have for overturning right. a call, unless you can see daylight, right? Unless the video can be paused on a frame and you can pass the paper through it proverbially, right. um, you, you can't have, overturn the call on the field. And yet, they, and did. yet they did. Right. So, so I guess so. So all this to say, I don't think the answer is to fix whether DPI is reviewable. Defensive, I, right. I think the answer is to figure out why referees are swallowing their whistles. Um, in these big games, which to me seems wrong, and to really teach them what clear and convincing evidence means, right? Something that yeah. I think lawyers are more familiar with than, say, the average man on the street. They must be. So I know nothing about how the, yeah. the refs are trained and what level of experience, but these must be among the more experienced refs. They must of course have they tons are. of training. No, no, of course they are. But my point, but, but, but what I'm saying is that the problem to me is not, you know, not calling defensive pass interference. The problem to me is cultural. Um, right, with regard yeah. to sort of attitudes toward throwing flags late in playoff games. It's like hockey, right? I mean, in hockey, there's an old saying that um, in the Stanley Cup playoffs, right, once you get to the third period, you got to draw blood to get a penalty. Yeah, right, right. right? I mean, well, and there is something to be said also about the, the larger cost of the game. If you allow time-sapping everyone standing around moments to accumulate, this is, the, this is one of the bigger problems in the NBA historically in recent years is, you know, the, the, the endless stoppages of play. Everything that all the major sports can do to speed things along is probably desirable from the gameplay right. perspective. So, yeah. so, so all that's okay. So that's so that's my sort of my big thing is like let's have a structural conversation about like officiating, not just about um, I, two more things though, right? One about the bad call, and then one about overtime because I think we have some stuff to say, right. So on the bad call, um, I am a Giants fan. I remember very well um, the end of a divisional playoff game between the Giants and the 49ers where the Giants were down thir- – this was a crazy game. The Giants had blown a 20-some-odd point second-half lead. They're down 39-38. Eli – not Eli. This is pre-Eli. But they, yeah, they I was going to ask you, who, do you remember who the, who the quarterbacks were back then oh, either? I really uh, – yeah. could, could it still have been Steve Young in 2000? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, hey, I'll look it up while you're okay. – So um, the final score – just look up Giants 49ers 39-38. Um, so – Here's what happened. The Giants line up to kick what would have been a game-winning field goal, but the long snapper, Trey Junkin, botches the snap. Um, and the punter, who's the holder, has no opportunity to sort of put it down and get the kickoff. So, Bobby, the punter does something incredibly smart. It wasn't fourth down. It was like second or third down. So the punter picks up the ball, Bobby, and throws it downfield. Um, right, trying trying to sort of find an open like as opposed yeah. to just being like, yeah. oh well, we're screwed, the game is over. The punter tries to save the play by picking. It. Tony Romo did something when Tony Romo fumbled that snap um, in the playoff game. He tried something similar, right, where you just try to make something out of nothing. So the punter throws the ball downfield. Um, the 49ers just tackle the guy who the ball was going toward. Flag comes out. Right for pass interference. Right, but the Giants, because it was a crazy broken play, also had an ineligible receiver downfield. Um, so lots of flags, lots yes. of confusion. Time has expired. Right, the refs all huddle up, and the referee says there's no flag for pass interference because there was an ineligible receiver downfield, and by rule, right, you can't commit pass interference on an ineligible receiver. Okay. But he was an ineligible receiver. And right, the and in that context, what the rules say is no, the penalties offset. So it was just a mistake. So it was a it was not a blown it was not a missed call. It was wouldn't time then have expired? No, because any penalty the game can't end on a defensive penalty. And under the rules but it, offsetting penalties count as a defensive oh, that, penalty. Okay, that's the thing so I So the Giants know. would have had a redo from the same bloody spot to kick the game winning field goal. That 
I, I, I just, I, I just, I, I understand that it was one round earlier in the playoffs. I understand, you know, this was sort of not as visible, right? But I am hard pressed to think of a worse blown call, a, a more decisively bad blown call in the NFL playoffs than a game-ending rules misinterpretation. Ouch. That well, cost the Giants a second shot at a game winning Now, this goal. may or may not make you feel better. The reason you couldn't remember who was quarterback before uh, Eli Manning is because your quarterback then was Kerry Collins. Woo! Kerry! <laughs> Kerry Collins. Now, I actually love seeing this. So, the Tiki Barber, yep, yep. Monty Toomer. Jason Seahorn. Yeah, Jason Seahorn and Michael Strahan. Yep. This is a, there's a lot of blast from the past names totally. here. That's pretty great. Uh, 49ers quarterback was Jeff Garcia. Wow. And that was when Terrell Owens was, you know. What a terrible, terrible game that must have been. All right, anyway, um, so let's talk about overtime. So it seems to me that the NFL keeps dancing around the problem with overtime in the playoffs, right? The problem with overtime in the playoffs is you cannot have a rule where the where one team doesn't get to touch the ball. No, it's crazy. Sudden death where you flip a coin. So and you do so this, the NFL it's took worse than so the, penalty. So kicks. They, they took a ba- they took a step, right? I mean, so five years ago, right? They changed the rule so that you can't win on a first possession field goal, um, which was at least a nod toward this. But listen, guys, this is the playoffs. The answer is completely freaking obvious, right? Don't play sudden death in the first overtime. Play ten minutes of no- play a, play a, a shortened fifth quarter. Right, where whoever's ahead at the end of the because t- they already play a shortened overtime now in the regular season, they play ten minutes, not fifteen. Play a ten-minute quarter, yeah, with alternating possession, and if one team is ahead at the end of that quarter, they win. There you go. And if not, then go to your Fakakta sudden well, death. How about this? Some some, uh, some friendly amendments. One, uh, play that extra shortened quarter. Uh, no field goals. No extra points. Ooh. So, so it's so touchdowns and, and two-point two point conversions. conversions. And sa- safeties. Don't forget safeties. And safeties. So as to huh, make no it less likely. To end in a tie. Less likely to end in a tie with the, you know, they exchange three points each. Yeah. So you've got to, you've got to be more bold. Uh, and then second. Because right, in a 10-minute quarter, you have a real chance that one team goes takes five minutes to kick a field goal and the other team takes five minutes to kick a field goal. And then you're, and then you're done. You're back where you started. So, and then secondly, if, if that you're still tied at the end of that, or maybe even just from the beginning, yeah. why not the college model? The college model is exciting. Okay, but you can't fun. start. You can't start from the twenty-five. Like if you're going to do that, if you're going to bring it to the NFL, you got to at least start at midfield. Yeah. Okay. So so shortened fields and but but the one key series is each. You air, you don't you don't the the coin flip becomes almost meaningless, right? Yeah. yeah. You, each team, well, not almost meaningless. I mean, right, like, whoever goes second has like the, the team that goes yeah, they second know what they need over time do. has a little right. bit of an advantage. Yeah. So, so all this is to say, there are lots of, I think, per, there are good proposals out there. Right. The one thing we should all be able to agree, if we can agree on nothing else here in 2019, can we at least agree that it should never be the case that in overtime, in the playoffs, an NFL team doesn't get to touch the ball? I mean, I just, yeah. how can that be controversial? And, uh, and don't tell me it's about player safety. Like, <laughs> is that what people say? That's ridiculous. I mean, uh, you no, know, that's what, ridiculous, right? Uh, you know, that we don't want the games to go on longer and longer because people will get hurt. Oh, give me a break. That's not, that's just not, which true. is not to say I don't care about player safety, but like, of course, of course, come on, people. All right, clearly right once again. Ooh, I think I like we, that. I think we, Clear, we clearly saved the right NFL. once again. The subtitle of this podcast, <laughs> this episode, ah, I'm writing that down. Clearly right, comma, once again. Clearly right, once again. All right, good. I think we're done. Wow. Well, I suspect that we're going to have a lot of actual national security news next week. We're going to break down the Al Nashiri and Spears arguments. Um, we'll have more to say about the, implica- the shutdown implications for national security. And Bobby, I suspect, you know, stuff's going to happen. Stuff will happen. If nothing else, a couple of classes will happen. We can report back on what we're teaching people. Uh-oh. That seems like really dangerous. Yeah. Anyway, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, tell your favorite furloughed federal worker, like my brother-in-law, and apologize that our government is unable to actually provide for them because that kind of sucks.
Mm. We appreciate what you guys are doing, those of you who are going in and working for free. And those of you who are, you know, home and can't work, we, we sympathize. But at least you can listen to this podcast. Hey, now. Silver lining. There you go. Yeah. All right. Stay safe out there. Adios.